0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more.
2: You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
1: Well, good afternoon. I'm Selena Green. This is the South Australian Country Hour for this Tuesday, the 10th of October. Great to have your company. Coming up, Australia's timber plantations continue to decline. So what needs to be done to get more trees in the ground to meet the country's needs? And do you have a feral deer problem on your property? Are you feeling perhaps a little overwhelmed on how to manage it or where to get started or what the best advice is to come up with a management plan? Well, there is a new resource available. It's out to give you some guidance.
3: So the guide goes into how to plan an effective feral deer uh, management intervention. Uh, and then it outlines the various management techniques you know ranging from sort of you know, aerial shooting ground shooting exclusion fencing uh, and then finally it, it talks about effective ways to, to best monitor and then also improve um, your overall management.
1: I don't forget if you want to get in touch with me throughout the program maybe you'd just like to say hello let me know what you're up to at the moment you are harvesting Right now, what are you up to today? My talkback number is 1300 222 891. Or the text line is 0467 922 891. Well, you might have heard a lot of talk about Australia needing more timber, more trees in the ground for construction demand and the like. But despite all of that talk and plans to plant many, many trees, it seems Australia's timber plantation estate is still going backwards. Natasha Sickman is the acting CEO of the Australian Forest Products Association. She joins me this morning. Uh, sorry, this afternoon. Natasha, thanks for joining me.
4: Thanks,
5: Selena. Great to be with you.
1: You've had ABARES' latest report uh, painting a picture of the size of Australia's plantation estate. What does that report tell us about what's happening?
5: So it's a worrying report in the sense that it's still showing a downward trajectory in our plantation estate. Um, and that is concerning for the industry um, and more broadly for Australia's
1: uh, timber supply moving forward. So the size of the estate at the moment, so whereabouts is it sitting? It's sitting at around
5: 1.7 million hectares, but what we've seen is a decline of around 28,000 hectares in the year uh, 2122 more concerning is since the year 2014 we've seen a really a significant decline in in the plantation estate and more will need to be done to actually increase those numbers and get more trees into the ground.
1: What reasoning what do you know why this is a downward trajectory why there is less plantations going in?
5: Yeah so what we see is uh, it's a really competitive landscape out there for land prices and what have you and Sadly, we saw with the MIS scheme a number of trees were put into the ground, but sadly, they were the wrong trees in the wrong place for the wrong purpose. So, as uh, those plantations are coming to their maturity, people are not replanting those plantations. So the estate is going down in that sense. And now, you know, the land prices have increased and it is challenging for people to look at that long-term investment to to get more trees into the ground.
1: Is that reduction in more so that um, those plantations on private land or farmers putting in plantations rather than, you know, companies investing in in large-scale plantations? Yeah, well, we see a little bit
5: of both. And, um, you know, certainly those long-term institutional investors are are supportive of plantations and um, are continuing to invest in their own plantations. We also see that there is uptake of farm forestry or agroforestry and and people are starting to integrate those production trees and plantations into their farm landscape and they are having uh, positive results. But it all comes down to ensuring that we have the right tree in the right place for the right purpose. And so that's where the policy landscape becomes a little bit more challenging. So we are seeing positive results in that space, but there is an education campaign there where we do need to collectively, governments and industry together, highlight just um, that there is those opportunities to get more trees in the ground. We're not seeing it at the scale that we will need, uh, but there is a lot of opportunity in what we'd call, I guess, that more least productive land or, or that marginal land in on agricultural land where you could possibly put more plantations. But they, it needs to also stack up economically, both for the farmer and the industry as well. So they do need to be closer to the mills and, and those manufacturing capabilities as well. So... There is that complexity there. And there are some policy parameters which have been put on the table, so there. For instance, there are plantation grants and what have you, but we're still to see whether or not how successful that will be. But there are some positive signs there, but I think that there does need to be a more concerted effort because we know that there is just this continual decline. More will need to be done to get those trees in the ground.
1: How far short of what Australia is planting and harvesting? How far short is that falling of what's needed? Because we are seeing a lot of imports at the moment.
5: Yes, and we've seen a significant um, rise in imports. So Australia is importing over $6 billion worth of timber into the country currently. Um, and I think, you know, that that takes us to the diverse types of forestry that we have in Australia. So it's, we have obviously our plantation estate and and that is going to decline. But we also have, um, you know, sustainable native forestry as well. And... Different timbers are used for different purposes and I think that um, is really important for policy makers and the Australian community to understand. Um, so whilst we, in Australia, there are policies that are reducing timber supply in Australia and Australia's own types sort of capability and being able to produce and manufacture the timber that we need here, we need to a better understanding that for some decision makers and, and some interested parties around Australia, they say that plantations can fill the gap of you know Australia's future timber supply. But we can see that that reality does not exist. We see increased uh, imports in the in the short term. We I think we've had about a nineteen percent increase in um, timber imports, and that is a direct outcome of state-based policy decisions such as Victoria and um, Western Australia closing down its sustainable native forestry. Timber will continue to come to this country. Plantations, all trees, take a long time to grow and hardwood in particular takes a a longer period of time to grow than than what we call softwood, which is traditionally pine and what have you. So, you know, moving forward collectively, again, I, I say that industry and it is industry is working very closely with government to actually understand what those future gaps are going to be and how do we incentivise getting more trees in the ground.
1: Well, Natasha, thank you very much for joining us on The Country today. Thanks, Selena, and uh, you're yeah, happy to be on any time, and thanks for having me on. Natasha Sinkman there, who's the acting CEO of the Australian Forest Products Association. It's 12 minutes past 12.
2: Australians will vote in the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum this Saturday. Join the ABC for live coverage of this historic event. As we share the latest results from our experts around the country.
6: David Spears, Bridget Brennan, Dan Borsha, Isabella Higgins and Patricia Carvelis.
2: And insights and analysis from Anthony Green and Laura Tingle. The Voice to Parliament referendum. Live Saturday from 5.30pm on ABC TV and ABC iView.
1: Well, feral deer are causing a growing and costly problem right across the country. But if you're on the land, how do you begin from a practical sense to plan how to manage feral deer? One place to start could be a new management tool from the Centre for Invasive Species Solutions. It's called a Glovebox Guide. Andreas Lanzig is the Chief Executive of the Centre for Invasive Species Solutions. And he explained how it worked. And
3: for part of our sort of glovebox series. We have a range of guides for, you know, wild dogs, foxes, and so on. So this is the the latest sort of cab off the rank, and and the idea with these glovebox guides is that they're very much a distillation of, in this case, five years of research and development uh, through a, a national program that involves South Australia, but also West Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, and Queensland, and. The culmination of that has been basically how we've distilled this all down into the glove box guide so that um, all the best practice management sort of um, lessons can now be available as tips in the, the glove box guide, so that 's uh, its purpose.
1: Right, so just tell us what it, it covers, what sort of things people will be able to use the guide to help help them with.
3: So the guide will enable users to understand the different species of, of deer. Um, And it has sort of some images of of what they look like, um, both males and females. Uh, It then sort of goes into how to plan an effective feral deer uh, management intervention. Uh, And then it sort of outlines the various management techniques, you know, ranging from sort of aerial shooting, ground shooting, exclusion fencing... Uh, And then finally, it it talks about um, effective ways to to best monitor and then also improve um, your overall management. So the idea is it's just trying to sort of put everything in a nutshell so that you've got a lot of uh, tips on best practice management um, at your disposal.
1: You mentioned there the various species of deer across Australia. So there are actually, what, six different species of invasive deer that can be found depending on where you are across the country?
3: So that's right. So there's 50 odd species worldwide. Six of those have been introduced into Australia uh, and together they've basically jumped from you know, around about sort of 50,000 deer in the 1980s to now about one to two million uh, nationally. And so they're in a major expansion phase and, and that's the reason you've got basically governments working together under a national feral deer action plan, including South Australia, uh, so that we can together put in place effective measures to control the the deer expansion.
1: And I guess those effective measures might look different depending on where you are, so it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach?
3: Oh, absolutely. And I think the National Action Plan really does set out the way that Australia can best approach the feral deer problem. Uh, So there's going to be areas where... Deer aren 't or are in isolated pockets, and so then the, the you know the focus is on eradication or or prevention uh, in areas where there's still um, a good opportunity for major suppression or eradication which includes south Australia um, then there's going to be a big push to you know, for containment suppression and uh, and ideally eradication uh, and then in other areas such as say victoria uh, and Tasmania, you're really looking at asset protections, you're sort of looking at protecting key areas for conservation, for agriculture, and and basically just sort of controlling deer to reduce those impacts.
1: As you mentioned there, you've done guides on other species. Why is it important to have one for deer? Where do they rate in terms of invasive species here in Australia and the damage that they're doing?
3: They're Australia's sort of major Emerging vertebrate pest. At a national level, they're already costing Australia 91 million a year. Um, so, and if, we, if we compare that to sort of the, the most costly pest for agriculture, vertebrate pest, that's the rabbit, that's around about 217 million a year. So, it highlights that the deer are, are well on their way to becoming a, a major vertebrate pest as they continue to expand into. Uh, new agricultural areas and, and also new conservation areas. Uh, and if we if we look at sort of the, the projected cumulative impact over the next 20 to 30 years, we, we know we're we talking something in, in excess of a billion dollars. So that's one of the reasons we've really got to sort of put the foot on the pedal now to put in place effective measures to uh, not only control deer but then push their populations down um, and push their distributions back.
1: If people would like to get a hold of this new guide, how can they do so?
3: they can get a hold of the, the glove box guide as well as a range of other resources such as our exclusion fencing guide on the PestSmart uh, toolkit website. So that's www.pestsmart one word, P-E-S-T
1: That's Andreas Glansing there. He is the Chief Executive at the Centre for Invasive Species Solutions which has put that glove box guide together not just for deer but for other pest species as well.
4: You're listening to Selena Green on ABC
2: Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
1: Well, since we're speaking about pest species, let's find out what uh, sort of pest control measures are happening in the far west of New South Wales at the moment. An aerial baiting for the spring season has begun, with the plane now making its way around properties in the far west. Western local land services have started deploying the fresh baits with the hope of curving the prevalence of wild pests in the region. And our reporter Lily McEwer spoke with the regional pest animal coordinator, Brooke Anderson, about the baiting process and their main concerns when it comes to the pest population in the area.
7: We run two programs a year, one in autumn and one in spring, and that's sort of timed around the life cycle of the wild dog and the foxes. So we're about to kick off into the aerial component of that, and in that we put a plane up in the air. The plane will drop baits that we have made locally here in Broken Hill and also in Burke, and they'll drop those at a rate of 10 baits per kilometre along some predetermined lines that the landholders have consented to us dropping them along.
0: What sort of baits are they using and dropping into these areas? So we're dropping uh, fresh meat baits.
7: Uh, Mostly they are kangaroo muscle meat. They've got to be 250 gram wet weight when they first start and we dry them out for a couple of days here in Broken Hill and in our other site depot up at um, Bourke. We dry them out to take a bit of weight out of them so they're a bit lighter for the plane. And then we inject them on site here with 1080 and that's injected at a rate of zero point two mil, so enough to kill a wild dog, but not enough to cause damage to our native species. Our native species are quite immune to ten eighty at that lower dose. Uh, it won't even actually kill a pig at that rate either. So um, yeah, we inject that, and then hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully
0: we're targeting the um, what, the pest animals with those baits. What are the main target pest animals that you're baiting?
7: mainly just wild dogs and foxes. Cats can take, or feral cats can take the bait as well, but their rate of uptake's pretty low. Uh, they're not really as inclined to chase a piece of meat. They'd much prefer a live, a live target. Um, so, yeah, we do the aerial baiting now out of the plane and then we follow on with ground baiting.
0: If you could give us a bit of a description on what the, the ground baiting does entail.
7: In our western region, we've got 22 pest groups that undertake ground baiting for these same species as well. And in that, the landholders collect an order of baits, it's generally in the thousands, and then the landholders will take that meat away, prepare it on some racks, dry it out, defrost it, dry it out, and then we all come back together as a bit of a community. The biosecurity officer goes along, they do the injecting of those baits, and the landholders all come around for the day everyone picks it up and takes it home and goes and puts it out in their property where they're seeing sign actively at the time so that's a real reactive it's a really good tool because they're seeing what's on the ground and then able to respond straight away with those baits and that happens all throughout october we try and line all the groups up as close as possible to really yeah to get the benefit of a coordinated baiting
0: and um, what have you been hearing from graziers about their main pest concerns and what they're having on their properties? A
7: big one at the moment is the feral pig population. It's affecting landholders across the whole state, not just our western region. So we are working with landholders in, a, in the feral pig space as well. But wild dog activity has been a little bit quieter, which is good. It's right at the moment. Bitches are still just in the dens, yet to fully come out with pups underground. So I guess as much as foxes and dogs are at a lower population compared to pigs at the moment, it's not something we can lift our foot on. They're low for a reason because landholders put the good effort in and we need everyone to continue that good effort and keep pushing forward and being proactive in control rather than reactive.
1: That was Regional Pest Animal Coordinator Brooke Anderson speaking there with Lily McEwer. You are with Selena Green on the Country Hour on this Tuesday afternoon. It is just going on 23 minutes past 12. I'm going to head off to the Weather Bureau in just a sec. But first, did you know that applications are now open for the 2024 AgriFuture Rural Women's Award? Now, this is Australia's leading award, empowering and celebrating the inclusive and courageous leadership of women involved in Australia's rural and emerging industries, businesses, and communities as well. So each state and territory winner receives a $15,000 grant for their project, business, Or program, as well as access to professional development opportunities and alumni networks. Uh, State and territory winners winners will also receive a learning and development bursary of up to $11,000. If you're chosen as South Australia's winner, you go on to represent the state in the national awards in Canberra. Uh, We've had our 2023 South Australian winner, Ali Paulup, was recognised for her work to establish the Bush Divine Indigenous Australian Native Sensory Bush Food Program, and that now features a beautiful sensory walking path with 40 different types of native plants and provides produce for the Bush Divine Winery restaurant, which is in the Clare Valley. So could you or someone you know be the next South Australian winner? Well, applications need to be in for the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award by the 25th of October. Uh, That's a Wednesday at 5pm. If you want more information or to find out how to apply, go to the AgriFutures website.
8: Conversations.
1: Spend an hour in the life of someone else.
6: When my vocal
3: valve opens and closes, I've got this little bump there which creates this rattle in the voice, this gravelly sound.
1: Someone who has seen and done remarkable things.
4: He was reaching down the throat with tiny scalpels and scissors
2: that were mounted on things that looked like knitting needles.
9: Hear the latest conversations.
2: Weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio.
9: Or any time on the ABC Listen
10: app.
1: So now it's time to head off to the Weather Bureau. Vince Rollins is our forecaster today. Hello, Vince.
10: Hello, Selena. Has
1: much changed since we caught up yesterday?
10: Not a lot. uh, Yeah, the timing of this change coming through is still pretty similar. So, yeah, not a bad day across the, the state. Pretty much cloud free, a little bit of cloud around the far southern coast, but... Other than that, looking uh, pretty good across the state. We did see a little bit of thunderstorm activity up in the northeast yesterday. Um, unfortunately, didn't go over any of our um, observation. Um, Site, So I'm not quite sure how much rainfall we've got up there, but just going on some of the sites uh, across the other side of the border, I would say it's probably around that sort of 10 to 15 millimetres with those thunderstorms up there. But yeah, dry across the state today, and we've got that high pressure system still sitting probably south of Mount Gambier at the moment. So still very slowly moving eastwards. But uh, as that uh, does track eastwards, we'll see that trough move into the Nullarbor Plain region tomorrow morning and then just continue to move eastwards and northeastwards over the the next 24 hours or so. So by Thursday morning, it should be in the northeast pastoral district. And then by the end of Thursday, um, moving out into the eastern states so certainly going to be a pretty hot one across most parts of the state tomorrow. So those temperatures will creep up again tomorrow. A little bit of a jump in some places just as those winds go more northerly. But uh, we do have some elevated fire dangers uh, tomorrow as well. At this stage we're looking at extreme for the Mount Lofty Ranges. West Coast District is pretty close so we'll we'll see how that comes out today but yeah just be aware of, with those hot and reasonably windy conditions there will be some elevator fire dangers but quite gusty southwesterlies is coming in behind that change and um, so we will see those um, winds picking up from the southwest and it does bring some shower activity with it as well and much cooler conditions so we'll see those cooler conditions start to push inland on Wednesday, but it's really excuse me uh, as we head into Thursday, we really do see those uh, cooler conditions pushing uh, right through throughout the state. We we'll see some shower activity over this mainly over the southern agricultural area on Thursday, in particular about the the ranges and the lower southeast. We do get a little bit of an easing of those showers and contraction further south on Friday. But uh, we get another little system embedded in the ridge coming in behind that trough. Just pushes those showers a little bit further north again on Saturday and Sunday, but still confined to the southern agricultural area. Uh, And then on Monday and Tuesday, looking at generally fine conditions. We will see the winds ease off a bit on Monday and Tuesday and some clear skies, so likely to see some inland frost over parts on Monday and Tuesday, but still remaining um, cool. So we'll get uh, probably today and tomorrow reasonably um, warm to hot conditions, but then we're going to have a run of quite quite cool below-average conditions probably right through until the middle of next week, Selena. So, yeah, unfortunately not much rainfall um uh, further north in the southern agricultural area and even in the southern agricultural area, we're just looking at generally up to about five millimetres, maybe a few locations in the southeast getting a touch more. So, yeah, not much rainfall, unfortunately, but, uh, yeah, much cooler conditions on the way after this trough goes through.
1: All right. Thanks for that, Vince. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. Okay, thank you. Vince Rollins there, who is our forecaster today at the Weather Bureau. Looking at the western inland of New South Wales, for the Upper Western District, tomorrow is looking at a sunny day with northeast to southeasterly winds fifteen to twenty Ks now. Those winds will turn north to northeasterly in the middle of the day before becoming light in the early afternoon. Overnight temperatures getting down to between twelve and sixteen degrees during the day, they'll reach the low thirties. For the lower western district, also sunny conditions, with light winds becoming northeasterlies fifteen to twenty five. 5Ks now throughout the morning. They'll tend northwest to northeasterly in the middle of the day. Overnight temps getting to between 7 and 14 degrees. Daytime temperatures in the lower western district reaching the low 30s. It is coming up to half past 12 here on the Country Hour in this next coming half an hour. Uh, fruit fly is a big concern for South Australia. Have you ever wondered how Queensland fruit fly actually arrived in South Australia? You'll hear from someone who's been doing well a bit of investigating into the history of that. And Were you born into farming or maybe it's something you came to as a second, third or even fourth career? You'll hear from a man who worked for 14 years as an ABC weather presenter. These days he's a full-time farmer. How did he find that transition?
9: You're listening
4: to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au
3: slash rural.
4: On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green.
1: Hi there and good afternoon. Great to have you on board. Coming up in this next half an hour, gobsmackingly hot. That's how one weather expert has described September in Australia. You'll hear a little bit more about just how hot it was. Speaking of weather, you'll hear from a former ABC television weather presenter turned full-time farmer, someone whose uh, voice and face may be very familiar to you. How well did his weather knowledge prepare him for the realities of farming? And also coming up, have you ever wondered how Queensland fruit fly made it into South Australia?
11: tourists travelling through or locals travelling back from outside the region and bringing fruit and inadvertently fruit fly with them and that's always a risk but uh, we like to get the message out there and make sure locals understand that they don't do that.
1: More on what the research is saying but first here is Matt Coleman with your news headlines. Hi Matt.
2: Hello, Selina. In the news this afternoon, seven out of eight men charged over the ambush killing of an innocent man in an Adelaide workshop more than a decade ago have been found guilty of murder. After more than five days of deliberations, the jury found the seven men guilty of the murder of Jason Delesso. Police and prosecutors argued that he was the accidental victim of a feud between rival bikey gangs. The jury has not been able to reach a verdict regarding the eighth man, Saewan Muradi. The situation in Israel and the Gaza Strip is escalating, with Israel cutting food supplies to the area and Hamas militants threatening to start killing hostages. More than 1,600 people have so far been killed on both sides. And teachers who move from interstate will keep their earned annual leave and sick days in a bid to make it easier to transition to South Australian schools. It's hoped the policy will encourage more teachers to move to regional SA to fill vacancies in country schools. More news at one o'clock.
1: Thanks for that, Matt. Matt Coleman there with those headlines. Now, yeah, are you someone who uh, farms and perhaps it's a side business for you? Maybe it's something you've been, well, dabbling in on the side or maybe it's something you came to after a career elsewhere. Did that former career help you when it came to farming and how did you find that transition? I'd love to hear your stories today. one 300 222 891 or you can text me on 0467 922 Well, first, the future of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan is the subject of a lot of closed-door discussions at the moment. South Australian Greens Senator Sarah Hanson young holds the balance of power in the Senate, has the leverage to make modifications in the upcoming vote over the Water Amendment Restoring Our Rivers Bill 2023. And when she was in Menindee last week, she told locals that insufficient environmental flows were coming in from the Northern Basin due to overextraction. Well, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, was also in the region on Monday. He says discussions are ongoing to try and get the changes to the plan over the line.
9: We're hopeful. We're in the consultation phase at the moment. What we what we want to do is to deliver on the promise of the plan that was there. Uh, we wasted essentially nine years. Not much uh, happened. In terms of uh, environmental flows, a majority goes from the period when we were in office 10 years ago. Uh, So not much was happening over a period of time. We need to have much better sustainable management of our water resources. Uh, The Murray-Darling Basin Plan went through the Parliament in a bipartisan way, uh, but it simply hasn't delivered uh, what it said it would. And that's why uh, we're working with the sector, with state governments, uh, working on efficiency Uh, but also working potentially on on buybacks uh, to make sure that the system is sustainable. We know we're facing a very dry and hot summer going forward. In terms of uh, the Greens and other parties as well,
1: I assume there'll be a fair bit of consultation and conversations through someone like Senator Hanson-Young
9: who's been out here on the ground and maybe what she said and maybe others. David Pocock was here a few months ago as well. Well, that's right. Tanya Plibersek, our Water Minister, has responsibility uh, for this and the environment. And Tanya is uh, consulting uh, very broadly. Uh, We need support obviously, of the Senate to pass any any legislative changes uh, which are proposed. Uh, but we want to make sure that, that it's got right. And uh, we certainly welcome uh, people coming and, and visiting and having those discussions.
1: As the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese there, speaking with Bill Ormond. It is just going on 25 minutes to one. Well, have you ever wondered how Queensland fruit fly got into South Australia? Well, the Riverland stone fruit grower has done some digging to confirm the origin of the pest and how it has spread. The region is nearing four years of the issue, with 44 outbreaks and a doubling of sterile fruit flies being released. Tim Greger, who is also on the Riverland Fruit Fly Committee, told Eliza Berlage his research has revealed three entry and spread points.
11: So in terms of spreading, there's sort of three key areas that uh, it gets involved, obviously tourists travelling through or yeah, locals travelling back from outside the region and bringing fruit and inadvertently fruit fly with them. and so that's always a risk, but uh, we like to get the message out there and make sure locals understand that they don't do that. And uh, the other one is the fruit bins, like uh, particularly in uh, you know, the fresh fruit and citrus industries uh, where they come back from processing interstate and still have fruit left in them. The interstate areas are endemic, as we know, uh, certainly in Mount Mulchera and also Geelong. And uh, if they're stored, stacked outside the factory and sitting in the open, then they're open to uh, being infested by fruit fly and then loaded and bring back. That's how we've identified they've come back through and then delivered all around the region. So that you can imagine fruit bins going all over the region that uh, potentially brings them in. And of course, what we all love to do is uh, share fruit. um, I'm one of them, growing nice fruit in your home garden and then share fruit around the region or vegetables. And we know that over time, people have been been sharing fruit infested and not realising, of course, that uh, it was infested with fruit, fruit flight. But that's how it came to get in here.
1: What sort of uh, documents have you been looking through for your research?
11: With the aid of POSA, i found detections going back quite a number of years. 2010-11 was the last year where we had no detections in the in the region. Uh, in 1718, there were 72 detections. And that occurred was one or two outbreaks amongst that. But aside from that, these detections were occurring across the region without triggering an outbreak. And uh, there's single male fly detection detections in the permanent grid. Uh, and to trigger an outbreak, you have to catch five or more in uh, a, a trap within two weeks. Uh, or a, a gravid female, a pregnant female, or larvae is found. That triggers an outbreak. And none of that was happening. So all, all that time, going way back, I researched back to 2016, sitting behind these outbreaks and we're talking 44 now, when I did the research, it was about 33. Sitting behind those outbreaks was all these detections going all the way back. What we now know too, that is every time there's a detection, most likely and probably almost certainly, that there's a breeding colony nearby. But during that time, nothing was done. Because of the protocol, it says that if you only get a single detection, there's no need to take any action. So none was done. And all that time, they are breeding away and building up. And then, of course, once they started getting established and you're not realising what it is sharing fruit around, that's how they spread across the region. And that's how we came to see so much outbreak. Now, what happened last year in July when we started to see this happening, two things happened. Pursa did a terrific communications program of advising the community what was happening. And the big thing was to home games to check your fruit pick it up, clean it up, pick it when it's ripe, check it, cut it, cut it up and check, and report all back it. And that's what happened. It took a while to catch on, but from the last 18 months, um, that's what was happening. The other thing that was changed is that with the single-fly detection With no action that I mentioned, that changed to taking action. So every time from July last year there was a fly detection in the suspension area, the first tech team would go and search for the larvae and mostly found it. So of those 44 outbreaks that we're talking about now, 21 of those were declared as a result of the public reporting maggots, which is a, a tremendous result. And then the other 17 were declared as a result of the tech team going and following up detections and discovering the breeding site and the others were triggered by a number of flies or um, a female caught or larvae found elsewhere. So whilst it sounds alarming and it is, it's been a period of discovery and the reality is most of these breeding spots have been there for quite a number of years, not just recent. they've been there for a long time and now that we've discovered them and know where they are, we can, we've can we marshaled the resources to be able to attack and eradicate and that's where, that's the program at the moment.
1: Do you have any idea how long Queensland fruit flies might have been here for?
11: Uh, look, there's been odd uh, detections, outbreaks going you know back several decades. Nothing to the scale of what we're looking at now. I think what's caused this to happen is that a fruit fly has marched down the eastern seaboard, uh, obviously from Queensland initially and then down through New South Wales into Victoria. And, and of course now sun is endemic. So it's got closer and closer and it becomes harder to keep it out. And I think that's put pressure on the borders and, um, and travellers are likely to pick it up more regularly or easily to bring it in.
1: Riverland stone fruit grower Tim Grieger. Paul Dowsett is the SA Department of Primary Industries fruit fly Emergency Response Program Manager. He says knowing how Queensland fruit fly got to the Riverland and how it spread can help inform eradication efforts
8: important because it really helps us control the movement of flies and larvae so we are really thankful for the community that are out there looking for flies or larvae in fruit we're really thankful for the people that are really dedicated to check their fruit and see if there's maggots in the fruit and then calling our fruit fly hotline which is 1300 three hundred triple six zero one zero. that's 1300 three hundred triple six. Zero one zero. The the controls are really important because we need to uh, limit the spread um, of the the flies or larvae. So knowing exactly where they're located really helps us put in our control efforts around those areas.
0: So you're finding that in understanding, I guess, how we've come to this point, you're able to better identify how to um, control it going forward?
8: That's, that's right, it's, yes, it's just been really uh, helpful to know where the flies could be uh, coming from and then it helps us really just focus our efforts and putting our, our best resources to those areas where it's likely that the flies or larvae uh, could be emanating from.
0: How satisfied is PIRSA with the current procedures for cleaning and checking fruit bins coming from interstate?
8: We um, think there's always opportunities for improvement and uh, we're certainly making sure there's a focus to make sure that our industry are doing the best possible things that they can by making sure that when they bring fruit bins or equipment from interstate, that is clean before it enters the state and making sure that the right control measures are in place.
0: Spring is here, the weather is heating up. So, what are the plans to deploy SIT into the Riverland?
8: Um, we've been going for about seven or eight weeks now. And fortunately, we've been able to expand our facility at Port Augusta, which is the facility that uh, raises or rears up the pupae, which we then bring to the riverland and then raise out to flies. We've expanded that facility to enable us to be able to produce 40 million flies per week. And just this week, we've just started the the releasing of the 40 million flies per week. Uh, We are using um, planes to do that. And in some areas where we're not able to do that, we do a road release. Um, So what we are doing is making sure we're targeting um, areas where essentially we've cleaned up the flies or larvae we've got very low presence or no presence of um, flies because uh, SET or the sterile insect technology works best when we have low uh, numbers of flies. And some of your residents might see um, planes flying around this week or have probably even seen them in previous weeks. And that's um, that's what we're doing in, by releasing the flies.
1: As Primary Industries Fruit Fly Emergency Response Manager Paul Dowsett there and he was speaking with Sophie Landau in that story from Eliza Burlage.
8: Music's one of the most beautiful ways of telling stories.
1: Hi, Zan Rowe here. My Take 5
6: series is back with a brand new season. This song has a special place in my heart. I'll ask Noel Gallagher, Natalie Imbruglia, Jimmy Barnes, Mark Cole-Smith, G-Flip and Lin-Manuel Miranda to share five songs that have shaped their life.
4: Music was everything.
6: Season 2 of Take 5 with me, Zan Rowe.
4: I'm there.
6: Starts
1: tonight on ABC TV and ABC iView. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour today. Well, September 2023 was Australia's driest on record and gobsmackingly hot across the planet, according to one expert. The average amount of rain that fell across the country was 71% less than normal. National weather reporter Tyne Logan explained to Kit Mokken just how dry it's been. Uh,
6: really, when you look at the map, it's it's been really widespread. The Bureau of Meteorology releases these rainfall decile maps. They cover areas in red that have had below average rainfall and it spans from east to west and really quite high up as well. The average amount of rain to fall across Australia this year was just 4.8 millimetres. I was trying to get a visual of just how low that was and, uh, you know, I managed to fit it in a tiny little syringe. So I, I don't, think, you know, it it requires too much imagination to figure out just how small that is.
0: Very, very small amounts. So what particular areas of the country are most affected at the moment?
6: Yeah. So, I mean, there's this really dark red area, particularly for September around the southeastern parts of the country. And they were really dry before this as well. So During winter, we had this kind of like, it's almost like a big chunk out of, um, big bite out of Western Australia that was looking really dry, uh, particularly along the West Coast, and then also along the coast of New South Wales and spreading into Victoria. And those are the places that have had a really dry September too.
0: What's behind it, Tyne? What's driving it? Yes, there's always a bit going on when we're talking about the weather, but there
6: are a few key reasons it's been happening. So one of them is the major climate driver, El Nino. It really kicked into gear in September, and that helps drive rain away from eastern Australia. There's a similar phenomenon known as a positive Indian Ocean dipole that's underway on the other side of the country in the Indian Ocean. That also is linked to dry weather really across most of Australia, and there's also climate change, which has seen a trend of reduced rainfall across southern Australia in the cooler months of the year. So all of those things combined, plus a bit of natural variability, and we've had the result um, that we've seen.
0: Farmers have been a bit of a a canary in the coal mine about this dryness recently, even though we have seen a really weird mix of fires and floods Mm. in Victoria this week. And we are going to hear about some crop saving rains in New South in just a tick. But weather-wise, is there anything good around the corner for them or is this going to continue? I
6: mean... Not really. Um, I I really wish I could say that you know it was going to turn around and it would be the perfect, the perfect amount of rain to finish. And you know, fingers crossed, maybe maybe it still is, but um, the the odds are very firmly in the favour of a dry rest of spring and a warm rest of twenty twenty three. So yeah, what we've had so far, the
0: all signs are that that's going to keep going. So in addition to being uh, the it's dry september for australia september was also the world's hottest can you tell me anything about that oh,
6: it, it's really remarkable how many records we've been breaking this year so july was the world's hottest month on record um and just ever since then it's been consistently hotter than ever before and september was off the charts it can cons- it It's a bit hard to explain without seeing this graph, but if anyone wants to, you know, look it up in a search engine and just have a look at it, you can see just how how far above any other September on record the global temperatures were, and and Australia was a big part of that as well. You know, it was we were the third hottest; it was our third hottest September overall on average. But Western Australia, New South Wales, and Victoria all had their hottest September days on record. In New South Wales, the average maximum temperatures were five degrees above average for September. So it's been really hot here and it's been really hot across the globe. One climate scientist actually um, tweeted it and described it as absolutely gobsmackingly bananas in his professional opinion, which is not the kind of normal scientific language that you hear, but I think it, it puts into context just how hot it's been.
1: That's the ABC's weather reporter Tyne Logan there speaking with Kit Mocken and given that we are expecting and preparing for a very hot dry bushfire season ahead the state government has uh, said that the top emergency services leaders from the state have been meeting preparing for us to face a hotter dry bushfire season with a number of actions already underway across the state and that will include a statewide advertising campaign starting at the end of this month encouraging all South Australians to have a bushfire survival plan so keep your eyes on He's peeled for more on that. But well, Since we're speaking of the weather, some people are born into farming. For others, it's something to come into later in life after maybe trying some various other careers. My next guest thought his former life as a weatherman would put him in good stead when he decided to take up farming. Well, for ABC weather presenter Graham Creed, he left his TV career in 2022 to become a full-time farmer. And he outlines in his brand-new book, Weatherman Goes Bush, even with his deep knowledge of weather and climate, to inform his decisions, the realities of flash floods, bushfires and drought presented some unexpected challenges. Graham joins me now and welcome to the Country Hour.
4: Thank you, Selena.
1: So let's start with your career as a weatherman before we get into the farming stuff. You did that for quite a number of years. How did you get into that in the first place?
4: Well, I suppose uh, I was always interested in the weather from being a young child. I grew up in Melbourne and so I lived there for the first 21 years of my life. And it certainly wouldn't be unusual to see me sitting out on the house roof taking photos of incoming thunderstorms and hail and just general sunsets, sunrises, that sort of thing. So I, I always had a fascination with it. I have my own instrument shelter that I built in the backyard. And so it was sort of a a little bit of a natural transition then moving into the Bureau of Meteorology, although it probably wasn't until I actually finished my HSC that I sort of thought, hmm, I I think something in the weather would actually be a really good career for me.
1: And it was in the sense that it certainly gave you a career and and you had a number of postings around the country. And then at some point you ended up on TV.
4: Yeah, and that didn't seem like a natural progression either. As you said, So I, I was posted around New South Wales. So back in those days, weather observers were posted to a state. So my first move was from Melbourne to Moree, which is a, a town of about 10,000 people up in the, the far northern inland of New South Wales. And so that was a, a bit of a culture shock. But um, I I loved being in the country and absolutely loved my job. But after about 11 years, I just sort of thought I'd I'd like to try something different. And I actually left the job, went and became a a personal trainer. I was doing a university course in nutrition and dietetics. I was working as a swimming instructor as well. I, I was doing so many different things. And one day I just sort of thought I can't keep doing this. I'm working basically 40, 44 hours a week plus doing a part-time university degree. And so I started looking for full-time jobs and just out of the corner of my eye in the newspaper, I saw weather and I read it and which and which an advertisement for a job on um, the Weather Channel, on OzStar. And so I applied for that and that was the beginning of what would become quite a long 21-year weather career on television.
1: What, about 14 of those years were with the ABC, in which many of our listeners would recognise your voice or your, your face as well from uh, being the weatherman for, for so many years. During that time on TV as a weatherman, it, was there any point where you thought to yourself, well, next I'm going to be a farmer?
4: No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we just happened to, to look at a, a couple of properties. We, we used to go away for weekends. We had dogs. And then we'd usually head to the coast, but we sort of thought, we need to find something that we can go to and perhaps something that we can retire to. And we just stumbled across this this block of land. So it was 119 acres. And we sort of thought, ah, this is it. You know, it's got the view, it's got the potential of growing stuff on it. And yeah, that was how we sort of made the transition. We bought this property over about eight years. We slowly built up different things within it. So we were growing garlic. We had uh, quite a few beehives. We planted a lot of trees. So we planted a lot of manuka and jelly bush for the bees. So it was just a a gradual transition that came to a head when one day we just sort of thought, why are we doing this travel every weekend? You know, let's let's just move to the farm and, and try and make some money out of it.
1: So give us a bit of an idea of the lay of the land, where you are um, in terms of Australia and, and, and yeah, sort of give us a, a place for you.
4: Yep. So the the farms by by road, it's about an hour, an hour and 20 minutes north of Newcastle. So it's, it's on the border of the Hunter and also in the mid north coast in New South Wales. So we, we really do sit right on the border of those two districts. And there's also a, a mountain range in behind us, and the highest peak there is Barrington Tops, and it actually gets snow on Barrington Tops once or twice uh, a winter.
1: And you've still got your garlic, as you mentioned, and then honey is still as well.
4: No, so with the with the honey, as some people may have heard, the varroa mite arrived in Newcastle, that was in June last year, and it's just slowly been spreading, and it, a town near us uh, recorded a hive with the mite, and that meant that we fell into a 10-kilometre eradication zone, so our beehives were euthanized. So that that's all on hold now. Um, we will wait and see what happens with the mite and wait till, um the potential for mite numbers begins to ease back and we'll look then at whether or not we'll go back into honey. Mm-hmm. But we have the garlic. We also grow proteas, leucodendrons and leucospurnums, so... Um, We've got plenty of plenty of flower growing potential on the farm and we've just recently pretty much doubled that over the, the last twelve months. So it's a bit of a mix. Nothing nothing that's super huge. It's it's just lots of different little things that uh, fall into place at different times of the year.
1: What's it like there at the moment? So uh, what have conditions been like?
4: Oh, look, it's really dry. I mean, when we first moved there, the first six months it never stopped raining. After that, it became quite patchy. And then the last six months, it's hardly rained at all. So it's, it's really dry. It's been a, a very warm winter and spring so far. We've, we've had you know days on end of, of 30 degrees. And we've had a couple of days of around about 36 degrees. It's been quite a lot of fires around the region at the moment as well. So yeah, the, the, the dryness is a bit of a concern at the moment.
1: Mm. I'm speaking to Graham Creed, who you may remember at some point during his 14 years as a weather presenter on ABC television. These days, he's a farmer and he's written a book, which has just come out, about his experience of that transition. It's called Weatherman Goes Bush. What's been the biggest learning curve for you going from your previous role, weatherman, TV weather presenter, full time farmer? What have been the, the big lessons?
4: I suppose one of the big lessons, particularly in relation to what I was doing on television, so um, providing forecasts of weather conditions, and always tried to make those forecasts more understandable to the people that, that were going to experience it. But being on the other side of it on the farm and looking at forecasts, often I sort of thought, gee, even though I was telling people what they could expect, I wasn't actually really fully aware of how they would be feeling as that weather was approaching. So, you know, the, the showers or thunderstorms in the forecast hasn't rained for two months. You know, that, that build-up of anticipation and hope that you get only to have it dash because the, the thunderstorms go round you, that's something that I'd not really fathomed quite Totally, and so that was that was a, a bit of a learning in that respect, and I suppose the other the other part is you know it's, it's hard work, but I, I mean I love it, but physically it, it's very demanding, particularly the way that we're farming we're trying to be as organic as possible. And so everything, pretty much everything's done by hand. We do have a tractor that we do a little bit of slashing with, but when we slash, we actually rake up the grass that we slash and use that as mulch for some of the garden beds. So it's quite physical work and I think I knew that, but I think my body wasn't quite ready for it. (laughs) I'm
1: sure it's telling you though. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now you have written a book about your experience, Where the Man Goes Bush. When did you decide you wanted to write a book about all this?
4: Well, it it was an unusual uh, beginning. After I'd resigned, uh, Richard Glover, who does the DRIVE program in Sydney, and I used to do the weather for Richard, so he did an interview with me and he wanted to know what I was doing and why I was doing it and knowing what I did about the weather, why on earth would I want to become a farmer. And the next morning after that interview, there was an email in my inbox from Alan and Umwin, who were the, the publishers of the book, and asking me, they said, listen to your interview last night. We think your story would make a really good book. So you know, it wasn't actually something that I was planning on. Um, and it probably took me about two months of thinking about it and umming and ahhing. And I listened to a podcast one morning that was talking about regret And it said that the majority of people that have regrets regret the things they never did, not the things they actually did. So I sort of heard that and it was like, all right, I have to do this. (laughs) But I don't want to be sitting around at 70 saying, oh, I should have written that book.
1: (laughs) Well, you don't have to do that now. It will not be on your list of of regrets of things I didn't do because it's out on the the shelves now. Graham, it was great to catch up with you to hear a bit more about it. And uh, thanks so much for your time.
4: No worries, and thank
1: you. It's former ABC TV weatherman Graham Creed. This time, well around, he's a full-time farmer, and his new book is called Weatherman Goes Bush, and it's out now. It's 20 minutes, well, hang on, it's about a minute and a half to the one o'clock news. Let's go to Jason Chonkers. He's on your radio for afternoons today. Hi, Jason.
3: Hello, Selina. Uh, hey, on today's show, we, there's, there's a talk this uh, tonight on, uh, on on AI and the bias that can be in it if you're not careful. Mm. So we're going to have a chat to the person who's going to give that talk at Adelaide Uni a bit later on uh, this evening. Also, there's a Santa shortage. I don't know if you are aware of that. <laughs> no. But uh, apparently, we need people to save Christmas. So uh, we're going to talk to a former Santa, or no, he's a current Santa, um, uh, about what it's like to be a Santa and if, if maybe being a Santa is, is for you. I...
1: <laughs> I was about to say something about maybe start time to grow the beard, but.
3: (laughs) Well, he has his own beard, but Ah. I think that they provide them as part of your work.
1: Right. (laughs) Obligations. Very, very important role as Santa's helpers out there Mm. for sure. We don't want a Santa shortage. That would be just terrible. No. Ah, all right. Well, very interested to hear more about what's involved in that role. Have a great show.
8: Yeah, lots more as well.
1: Jason Chong, he'll be on your radio for afternoons. Stick around for that and stick around for the one o'clock news. Thanks for your company today. It's News
9: Time. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page.
4: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.